Welcome to the Leadership Akron podcast. For over three decades, Leadership Akron has served to inspire, connect, and develop leaders to strengthen the Akron area. Learn more about opportunities to build Leadership Akron into your pathway at leadershipakron.org. Good morning, everyone. Good, uh, good to see all of you here with us uh, for Leadership on Maine. Uh, I just want to start by thanking Ken Babby of the Rubber Ducks for hosting us. Sam mentioned that opening day is April 17th, which is a Friday, and fireworks. So uh, get your tickets for the Rubber Duck season. And again, a huge thanks to, to Ken and his generosity for hosting us every month. Uh, just a couple quick announcements before we, we begin the program. We um, are looking for uh, anyone who is a, a new senior leader in the community, who's a new executive leader of any a public company, a large organization, nonprofit that we can recognize in an event in May. And so if any of you know of any of those new executive leaders in the community, um, please send them our way. Susan's been collecting names. We want to make sure that we can recognize all of those, those leaders and introduce them to our leadership background alumni. Uh, we are going to open up our applications for all of our programs at the first week of March. So if you know anyone who's interested in our signature program, Diversity on Board or Next. We encourage you to send them our way. We're going to also have some informational sessions. So for anyone who wants to find out a little bit more about those programs, hear from some past participants, we'll, uh, we'll have those sessions available too, just so people can better understand what Leadership Akron's all about and which program might be best for them. So I'm going to uh, introduce our guest this morning. We are, are thrilled to uh, have Jeremy Lyle and Madhu Sharma with us this morning. Uh, Jeremy is the Executive Director of Heart to Heart Communications, our next-door neighbor, uh, a leadership background and, and a great neighbor. Jeremy had just shared with me that he was in Class 34 of Leadership background, and at the conclusion of that program, was looking for his way to get more involved in the community, and as a result, got on the board of the International Institute of Akron. So uh, clearly, uh, demonstrates of the, the power of the signature program, and Jeremy finding his, his place in the community, and Madhu Sharma, who's the Executive Director of the International Institute of Akron. So, thrilled to have you here, and I will now hand the conversation over to the two of you. All right, good morning, everyone. Good to be with all of you. Excited to get started. So, just by way of introduction, I know they sent out uh, bios for everyone. So, uh, when Madhu and I met and kind of just talked about some of the things she would share about this morning, we kind of jumped right into just her passion for the work and all the good things mm -hmm. happening. And so, I forgot to do a little bit of research on um, maybe just some nuance about uh, who she is and some of the things that have shaped who she is. So, I had to do a little bit of digging and came across Cleveland Magazine's. 30 Most Interesting People, in which Madhu was recently featured. And so here's a few things I found out about her by way of introduction that maybe you wouldn't read in the bio. So we'll see. Hopefully she doesn't, uh, you know, kick me off the board for <laughs> sharing some of these things. Um, so what it says in here is some things about why she's interesting. Before moving to Akron, Madhu spent 20 years representing undocumented workers, refugees, and asylum seekers 
in California. The worst grade that she ever received was in her immigration law class. <laughs> it says that she had already moved to Los Angeles and started looking for work in immigration law when she got her results. It says about a C. I don't know what a, about a C is, why but she uh, said all right. That. It was a C. It was a C. All right. Yeah. Thank you for that transparency. Um, but she said she ended up calling her professor and asking, should I really be doing this for a living? Um, but she realized that if she had pursued any other form of law, she would have hated it. Uh, she was drawn to immigration law in part because she was an immigrant, is an immigrant. Her family moved from Punjab, India to Cincinnati when she was just a baby. And last uh, but not least, it says in her spare time that Madhu writes short stories and poetry. She says, writing replenishes me. As an introvert, it helps me get those things that are inside of me outside. <laughs> so more importantly than just these things is... Um, you know, the, the opportunity I've had as a, a board member to see Madhu's comp compassionate heart and her innovative mind um, for the work that she does. And it's clear when you see her in her role and in action that this isn't just a job for her, this is a vocation, uh, something that she feels, uh, you know, very passionate about in her life's work. And I think we're really honored to have her here in the community, uh, in that role at the right time, uh, the right person. For, for our city, so uh, great work that she does. So Madhu, um, perhaps share just a story or two about some important life experiences that have really shaped who you are as a leader and um, maybe some core values that have resulted from those experiences. Well, first, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> I don't know, that thank you's a little passive aggressive. <laughs> I've been trying to hide that article, but you can't do it. Um, uh, so it's kind of embarrassing to be called uh, one of the most interesting people when you kind of, I, my life has really been my work and um, lots of amazing experiences that have um, come out of um, the people I've met in my work. Um, so it doesn't always seem interesting, but I know I'm enjoying my life. Um, so I, I guess I should say, I, I grew up in Ohio in the 70s. <laughs> Not in Cincinnati, we moved to Cincinnati, but I grew up in rural Ohio in, in New London, if any of you know of it, central Ohio, um, a, a town with a population of 3,000, and we were the only immigrants. And this was an era when um, uh, immigrants assimilated. We did not have values yet to integrate immigrants into our communities, so um, you can imagine how difficult that might have been for Indian immigrants to assimilate in rural Ohio. Um, one benefit we had was my mom was a farm girl. And so, you know, our um, backyard garden was the envy of the farmers and the community. And I think because we shared our produce, we made a lot of friends um, in the community, and we, they felt they had something in common to talk about with our family, which was really, you know, growing produce in a rural Ohio. Um, so it was the 70s, and times were very different. Um, it, and being the only immigrants in the community, um, we really did have to just kind of learn to fit in. And probably, I believe, the thing that shaped me most um, was how, how difficult that was as a child to actually have to deny 
um, almost live a double life and have to deny a significant part of who you are and how your family works and because you really couldn't be open about it. My family taught me um, to, to be safe in the community and not rock the boat, make sure you fit in. And so quite frequently, you know, we try to um, eat the same foods and talk the same talk that you did in the 70s in Ohio. And we never really talked about our culture um, and um, what happened at home with our family, our extended family, um, the experiences from our travel back to India. We went to India once when I was a child and boy did it just open up my eyes about where I was from and I came here as an infant. So that experience and meeting my family back home really made me feel connected in some way but also like wow I really can't figure out where I've been. Um, so that obviously informed my work. I, I went to college in that radical school up north that we don't like to mention and um, I really found a voice in college where um, you know identity was identity politics is always a college experience right um, but there was definitely um, space for my genuine experiences the conflicts that come from being other or different than others around you and um, I didn't know it at the time. I was very interested in global and international politics. I didn't know I was going to pursue immigration law, but ultimately I went to law school because you do that as a good Im Indian immigrant daughter. You either go to med school or you go to law school. You do Gandhi's profession or you heal the world. <laughs> and, um, and so I chose, I pass out of the side of blood, so I chose um, law and um, really don't think I wanted to be a lawyer until at my last semester when I took immigration law. And you heard the story from Jeremy and it didn't do well. Um, it was also, in my defense, the year that our immigration laws went through a massive reform um, in the Clinton administration. And um, I don't think many of us understood what was happening to the changes in immigration law. But, um, so I've worked as an immigration attorney my whole career, and it's interesting now to be leading an organization instead of directly <coughs> representing immigrants and serving um, immigrants who are usually survivors of trauma. I am now leading and guiding a staff who's doing that work, and I think one of the key values I've learned in my work is um, to give people the space um, to be vulnerable. I think I've said that in many spaces in Akron recently, um, but I do believe that is what's made me really effective at my work because when people were coming to me to seek trust um, and just, you know, they were already, there was already a language barrier, there was certainly a cultural barrier, and they were usually asylum seekers or children that were escaping um, abandonment, abuse, or neglect, or um, trafficking victims in the farming industry out in California um, and there were so many barriers to overcome the one thing I, I genuinely related to and empathized with was the trauma that they went through and knowing that I had experienced significant trauma as an immigrant myself different of course than theirs but um, dynamics in immigrant families that really informed my work and my experience and my openness 
Um, and while I didn't open and share, because that wouldn't have been appropriate, I certainly learned the value of um, being willing to go into those spaces where people are vulnerable. I was asking that of others and my clients, one by one, after, over many years, taught me um, that vulnerability is actually strength. And so I use that frequently at work. I, I'm surprised at how often I, I tap into my staff's willingness to um, take a chance, be wrong, make a mistake, correct, um, learn something as an organization from um, our clients who will consistently tell us if we ask for the feedback how we can do better. Hmm. That's probably the key value that guides me as a leader um, is to overcome those things that maybe you want to hide about yourself um, be open about it, and ultimately it, it, it creates a space where people will connect. Yeah, great. And I think this kind of connects into that, um, but a little bit about your distinctive approach to leadership, both personally and professionally. Uh, obviously that vulnerability ties into that, but, but how would you describe that approach? I think I'm still developing it. Um, like I said, so I'm fairly new to leadership um, in the uh, context of work, right? I have certainly led um, and mentored attorneys. I've taught immigration law. There's been many opportunities for me to lead and manage staff, but it's not quite been with the freedom to have my vision actually affect the organizational culture. So, um, as I'm, you know, I'm taking the experiences I've had as a professional and in, ensuring that it informs our workplace culture. So key, obviously, is that notion of vulnerability. We, you know, we're not going to be perfect service providers for immigrants. Most of the people we are, are serving are um, survivors of trauma. And um, so quite often, just the way we show up to meet their needs could be triggering, and that's unintentional quite often. But if that is to happen, we need to be very trauma-informed in the way we provide care. And so that actually requires a level of vulnerability because almost always you inadvertently could trigger someone. So rather than um, show up in, a, a, you know, in, a, in that type of a situation in a defensive way, we have to be open to knowing that, oh, something I did or how I did it might have triggered someone or might have caused a lack of trust between me and my client. We navigate that on a daily basis because we're crossing cultural boundaries, language boundaries, um, and we're working with individuals who feel that our organization is always part of a very large system that they've already traveled through to get to Akron, Ohio. And so there's a lack of trust because there's a lot of bureaucracy in refugee resettlement and immigration law. And it's hard to separate ourselves from the things that um, I, you know, our governments are doing and the UNHCR is engaged in and um, the International Office of Migration. There's lots of entities that create red tape and bureaucracy that impact people's lives. and we sometimes get wrapped up in it. And it's my goal to lead in a way that we, IIA, with the 100 years of history we have here, have never been perceived of as bureaucratic. And so when we show up, it's our goal to help our clients see that um, we're, we're their ally, we're their advocate, and we're here to help them. 
what are one or two things that just help you stay grounded in that vulnerability and, and help you lead your staff in that as well? Uh, well, writing. I have, I learned when I was probably in my early 30s, I, I got secondary trauma from asylum cases that I was um, doing, especially the children I represented. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have heard stories in the news about children in cages, and just horrendous stories of separation. Well, you cannot serve individuals that are impacted by those societal um, injustices and not be having nightmares at night <laughs> if you are a normal human being. And, and ultimately, I sought therapy, and I was able to learn tools to help me stay in that space of vulnerability without absorbing people's pain and vulnerability and then not having a place to put it, right? So I started to write poetry. I, I frequently write essays. I'm wor always working on a project. But I also started to openly talk, not just with a therapist, but with now I have the opportunity as a leader to have the spaces in our teams where we might share some of those more difficult times. And we, we sometimes we're pounding on the table because we're angry. And other times, um, we're moved to near tears because someone um, has opened up and told us something and we're feeling a little bit helpless or you know we don't have enough control to change the circumstances. And I'm working with people who probably haven't done this as long as I have, so it, it's actually quite helpful to um, be able to help others um, based on my own experiences to cope with the secondary trauma and then show up and keep doing this because it's a great, great, um, purposeful life that I've lived. And so what I don't want to happen is that people end up discouraged, frustrated, um, and want to you know, give up and move on. Um, there's a lot of turnover in this work. I, I hope that we're creating um, future social workers and lawyers and um, case managers, employment personnel who are, are going to be doing this for life. Um, also my dog. I have the sweetest boxer puppy. She's a rescue and she is my emotional support animal. Um, just a quick story I'm going to share about her that's connected to my work. For two years I was teaching in LA before I moved to Akron and I wasn't taking cases. It was my way to step back and kind of put it a distance and um, kind of take care of myself for a while and reset and decide where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And that's actually what led me back to Ohio where my parents are because I decided I wanted to be closer to family. I adopted a dog because I finally had time to raise a puppy. And um, this kid came across my life, a 17-year-old who was um, here in the United States alone. He was from Burma, he was Muslim, and he fled because of persecution in his village. And um, he got my number, which was you know, on the State Bar website, I wasn't trying to hide. But he asked me if I'd take his case, and um, you know, I, my specialty was Burmese asylums, I've traveled to Burma, and I, I wanted to say no, but something was telling me to do this case. And um, the first few um, meetings that we had when we were really trying to retell his story of per past persecution, um, he sat in my chair with the autumn at his feet up, and my puppy was sitting in his lap, and I knew <laughs> that mm -hmm. she was actually going to help me do this work. Yeah. 
and he cried when he told his story and he had his he had I had a dog there to help him get through it and thankfully he was a dog person but um, so I actually bring her to work sometimes because it lightens up everyone even the staff where most of us are dog people and I make her stay away from those who aren't <laughs> which includes our um, operations director oh, Kurt. Yeah, he's a cat guy. Uh, so we won't hold it against him. We don't hold it against him. <laughs> and if is your any of your poetry or writing accessible? If people wanted to, you know, check I, it out. Do you publish it all? That I don't publish okay. my poetry, but that is something I feel now that I have the space and time and and the distance from the work I do. I I will probably seek to do that soon. All right. I know that there's um, some men writing mentors for me in the community that I've reached out to for that purpose. So I guess look out. But it's very yeah. personal stuff that may not even connect to my work, obviously. But um, it helps me. Even like I've had clients call that client that constantly calls all the time to check the status, but nothing's really changed. Um, and so you kind of dread taking that call because you know it's just more bad news. And, they're anxious, and you have to manage their anxiety a little bit. And I would crank out a poem before I returned the call. <laughs> but I would return the call. But it made it easier to um, return a call because I did, you know, vent it a little in that poetry. Um, and, and obviously what that helps me do is connect to people um, by connecting to myself first, which is great. the key in this work. Yeah, great principle. Um, so I know you know, just being on the board for a little over a year and over the past few years, all the changes and transitions, um, even relocating IIA and uh, things on the national level and everything. But what are one or two of the greatest challenges or issues that you face as a leader? Um, I think the national attention to our work um, has been both um, a challenge and an opportunity. I mean, that's what we say as leaders, but it truly is because now people know. I'm speaking to a room full of people who you may never have thought of our national immigration policies and laws and how people at our border are affected, how people that might be picked up by ICE in Ohio are affected, but it's been in our news in the last few years, so you may now have opinions and questions and and that suddenly we have allies that are engaged, or at least a community that's very interested to learn. And it feels a little bit less like the work I do is um, in a bubble um, that people don't understand and they're not really interested in. Um, which lends some value to the experiences I've had and the experiences of immigrants, but it also creates a massive challenge, which is there is a thirst for information right now related to immigration laws and um, not enough of us who know enough in this particular community. So um, to be honest, one of the biggest challenges has been um, getting information out to community members who are allies and partners um, effectively and being able to say no when we need to because you know we need to hunker down and take care of immigrants as well and creating that balance um, for the staff and for ourselves organizationally and then also, I know there's an opportunity to monetize this in the future. And, and we're going through some strategic planning where we recognize that this is actually possibly an opportunity that um, IIA has actually already been engaged for over 100 years in our community in tapping our Akron and Summit County community into more of a global perspective or an, um, 
uh, international perspective. Um, the university has always been a partner in that. Our local hospitals, based on you know individuals they hire, have been partners in the clients <laughs> they serve. But we're resettling refugees, and we used to resettle over 700 refugees a year into our community. Today, it's about 150. So um, you know, I think with that comes right now we have a little bit of room to be more strategic about educating our community and being a resource to the community. And balancing that with the heightened vulnerabilities and needs of the immigrant community because there's not as many coming in. Obviously, it creates a financial crunch for us because our organization was predominantly um, a re refugee resettlement agency since the 1970s. Most of you know that. And in the last three years, resettlement is a smaller program for us because we have no control over how many refugees come to Akron, really. So, so we built up our legal services. Um, there were two massive ice raids in the community. So, you know, the, the consistent transitioning and reactivity to federal policies impacting our local communi community of immigrants has been a challenge. Um, and I also feel like it infuses our, our um, uh, organization with some anxiety if we don't um, you know, really perceive it as, oh wow, things are going to change and this is an opportunity for us. Um, and I really do empower the staff to be as angry as they get, uh, you know, like vent it. You don't have to pretend like this is easy right now. Um, and we have lots of, uh, we used to anyways, have a lot of team meetings. Um, because we went through two, two um, <coughs> rounds of layoffs yeah. after um, uh, the Trump administration um, set refugee numbers back so far, really the lowest in our history. Um, and so there was a need to really reset and keep morale up in our organization. Yeah. Talking about that um, and just thinking about kind of that role of information, if there was one bit of misinformation that you could correct or, um, you know, help people understand better, what, what would that wow, be? Wow, I don't, we didn't I know I'm throwing that. some curveballs. But that, I like that question. It gives me an opportunity to tell you that there really are no illegals. <laughs> this is a myth in the way we think about our immigration laws. And I'm not trying to politicize an issue. It, it's actually not legally accurate to call someone an illegal immigrant. There are people here who crossed our border without documents, and in our, um, you know, in the community of service providers, we do refer to them as undocumented immigrants. And I think perhaps Ohioans don't know how many undocumented immigrants are working in our food industry, and that actually they keep the cost of our food in Ohio quite. I mean, it's affordable food here. Um, so it, it's really, today especially, I, I feel there's a need to have dialogues about what to do about these individuals who live in our communities, who've contributed for sometimes over a decade or more to our communities and to our food industry and to our other industries in Ohio, including meatpacking, farming, manufacturing um, and you know how you know how are we going to as a nation solve these issues because as a state we really don't have a lot of um, power to do so they're federal laws but I, I believe that is the biggest um, challenge really for our country right now as we're going through 
while there's a lot of attention on the crisis, quote unquote, of um, illegal immigrants, um, it's just misinformation. I, I genuinely believe that the since the change in the law in the late 90s when I first started and what caused my C, <laughs> um, I'm joking, um, it really was, I think, a disconnect for me uh, between my experiences and the law. That is what I learned, right? Since the 80s, we've really had um, kind of a tearing down of our immigration laws to the point where there is really no pathway. That's a myth to think. You get in line in that, there's literally a line, it's just 18 year line. It takes somebody like um, John Oliver 10 years to become a US citizen. And he's famous comedian who has his own show, right? So that's kind of absurd, right? We want the talent and the workforce that we need in this in this country. It's always been immigrants, always. Um, historically, each one of us has a history of immigration. Um, so I, I feel like you know we need to have real conversations about how we're going to reset as a nation and what those laws might look like. Yeah. And it's going to be scary and ugly, but we need to be able to do it. And I think um, <laughs> to be engaged as citizens in um, a community like ours is important. Be engaged in that. You know, try to understand and we can get your head around some of the debates related to immigrants. Great, thank you. You mentioned earlier partnerships with the University of Akron and the county and just many different uh, entities in the community. Talk a little bit about just the need for collaboration. I know when we talked, you said that lawyers aren't uh, necessarily trained to collaborate um, on, on a lot of things, so that's been more of a learned kind of uh, skill for you as a leader, but just talk about kind of the importance of uh, being collaborative as a leader and even what that looks like for, for you and for IIA. So I had the benefit of working in a community um, in Los Angeles for so many years that really, really was effective in collaborating um, in immigrant advocacy. And why? Because there were more immigrants than people providing services to immigrants, so we needed each other. And we needed to be in it together. Every time I had to say no, I needed to be able to refer a case or a person to someone who could say yes, right? No matter why I was saying no. Um, and so collaboration was key. You built trusted partnerships so that you could have the boundaries that you need as an organization to serve individuals well. Collaboration instead of competition is so much easier when there's a lot of wealth in a community, right? There's more abundance in a community. But I think living in an environment where there was abundance helps me always see the opportunities for abundance in our community, where I think there's a bit more of a culture of scarcity here. Um, and so there's more of a competitive environment surrounding um, immigrant services. And I know that's changing because um, you know, one of the benefits that's come out of um, current politics related to immigrants is there's been a cohesion as advocates um, and, you know, there's shared values in our community about our neighbors, right, um, no matter where they're from, and um, the desire to protect our neighbors and to educate our neighbors and really to integrate them effectively into our community. So. Um, there's so much opportunity for collaboration, but I think what works for me, what's always worked for me is to see, um, into, you know, 
to, really to see the potential um, uh, for collaboration as an opportunity to be able to do things better and do things and do more for immigrants in the community. Um, and then also it gives me as an individual and IIA as an organization the opportunity to say no when it's not really our area of expertise, our specialty, or our, you know fits within our strategy and allows other partners in the organization to say yes, or, I mean in the community, to say yes and take up that responsibility. And then we know that as a team, and as community service providers for immigrants, we're actually working together. So one individual, one immigrant in our community really ought to sh touch many different organizations in our community to have a full life where they're thriving. Hmm. Certainly there was no one place I went um, in the 70s to, to feel you know, that I had the resources I need. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was an entire community um, and access to the community. Um, but I have to say the key is really creating those relate immigrants really um, effectively creating relationships um, is what helps them to access those opportunities. So we're not always the best organization to know the referral, um, and it could happen elsewhere, like yeah. at the hospital or at the library or at school, um, um, possibly even um, in other environments, uh, religious environments where the people are worshiping. Every, every um, place you go in your neighborhood is really an opportunity to connect you to resources, right? We all know that in Akron. So I, I think that is the key to collaboration, is to know that we're just a piece of a greater community. Yeah. And I like that recognition of the trust and the relationship that creates then those connections of saying, hey, this isn't our lane, but I know the lane you should be in, or this person or organization you should connect with, and that's great. Um, so collaboration, I know, is a, a key theme of, of Leadership Akron and just leadership in general in our community. Um, also, kind of over the past several years, the, the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion has really risen to the surface um, in many ways, and just uh, interested in you know some of your experience in those and in those spaces. and. Um, you know, maybe even challenges you face. So on my first day at work in Akron, Ohio, I went to a, um, a statewide meeting. We hosted it here in Akron, IIA hosted it, um, for the Ohio Refugee Advisory Council. It's the statewide refugee services providers, um, and we hosted an event in Akron on my first day at work, and I was one of two immigrants in the room. And the entire conversation was about, um, I want to use the same words, but I, I can't even bring the words to mind because they're just not words I use. Um, but there was a lot of talk about what are the problems in working with these people and immigrants. And um, boy, it was painful. I think I went to the bathroom and cried and thought, what have I done? <laughs> Why have I come to Akron? And I did do that. And it wasn't long before I found the venues and the spaces where people are trying to change the way we speak um, about others, right? And, um, and so I know there's been a concerted effort in Akron. And I found those spaces very easily. And I recognize that there's almost like a changing of the guard that's happening nationwide, but also within our community. Um, 
the challenge really is being one of very few voices of immigrants. Um, there are a lot of immigrants in our community. There's not a lot of access to leadership experience and leadership opportunities. Um, so IIA tends to be a hub where people contact us and ask us if we can send a speaker, if there's somebody that can come and talk about this, that, or the other. That's maybe about cultural competency, but the interest in learning is really important. Um, but the fact that there, the burden falls upon very few, I think if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, you know what it's like to be the only voice in the room representing an entire group of not homogenous people. That is so challenging because it comes with the responsibility, but it also comes with the need to kind of correct the spaces we're in. Really invite people to recognize that, yeah, I don't really speak for the Bhutanese community, but maybe we can connect you to someone who does. Or, um, you know, we're not a one-stop rent and immigration organization, right? So I always say that in public spaces. You can't rent an immigrant at IIA. Uh, but what you can do is connect with immigrants in your community if you want to hear about voices of, um, and include the voice of immigrants. Um, but the key is that our rooms, our spaces, should look as diverse as you know our places of worship, our, the restaurants that we go to, the stores that we shop at. And um, it can only be that diverse, right? Yeah. Um, but we also need to, to create the spaces where people who may not, you may not be able to see their otherness, are able to speak about it and feel accepted. And um, you know that might be someone who's LGBTQ. Um, it may be someone who suffers a disability that's not visibly apparent. Um, so mental health is a big issue in our community. We know that. We have people that are recovering from addiction. Um, so I feel like AFRIN really has the values, just because of its history and connection with AA, um, to be inclusive. And I, I believe that most of our challenges are opportunities, but for me as an individual, the biggest challenge has been um, being seen as a voice of immigrants, um, which is part of my job, frankly, but um, it didn't used to be. Um, I used to be an advocate for a particular family or a immigrant, and now suddenly um, I'm speaking in spaces on behalf of all immigrants in the community. And, that can be a landmine. Um, so it takes a lot of humility to constantly check myself and know I actually don't really want to speak for all immigrants. I don't have to take this on. So, or, or all people that might be um, vulnerable in our communities are not necessarily included. But I do think um, each of us has experiences where um, we, we can bring our voices to um, the spaces that we in, in, are living in here in our community. And um, because of the smaller community that we're in, there's more, there's more of a chance for building understanding across differences than perhaps if we lived in a larger community like Cleveland. Yeah, great. So I, since I threw a curveball at you earlier, I guess it's appropriate in this baseball-themed <laughs> space here, I'll, I'll, I'll lob you one here um, that we had discussed. But I had asked you just kind of a bonus question of, you know, if there was one thing, and only one thing that you could choose, um, you know, that you would want people to know, or an action that they could take, and maybe this even ties in with some of the, uh, you know, moving, as you talked about, a little bit from that place of awareness to advocacy, um, you know, what, what would that one thing be, if, if you were kind of uh, leaving us with that today, and it was 
potentially amplified out into the broader community. So I've wavered on this a lot and have gone back and forth. What should that look like? That, that's a really tough question because I think as a nation right now, we are in some crisis um, when it comes to um, the divisions in our country, um, whether they're political, um, whether it's race, um, you know what it's it's there's a underlying language of fear and hate in our communities and I believe that our right now my, the message I would like to share with all of you and have resonate is that um, we we as a community do not have to allow um, national and rhetoric to impact our neighborhoods and our community and our county and the spaces that we live in. We can actually conduct ourselves like we do with understanding. Um, and understanding actually is an opportunity to listen. Um, not always asking questions, um, but to listen and, and to be quiet and listen, right? Listening is an active engagement, but it, you can't really do it if you're also talking. So um, that's what I'm going to ask, is to build some understanding. Um, each of you probably has an opportunity today to connect with somebody who might be from a different part of the country, a different part of the world, um, might have experienced Akron differently than you have, right? And I would just invite each of you to engage in your conversations with some understanding and willingness to be changed because I don't think we're gonna get far if we get stay stuck and stubborn in our values and thoughts. Um, there's always something someone teaches me, always, every day, yeah. if I just be quiet and listen to them. Great, thank you. Well, I think we're up on our time uh, for this part, but we're gonna open it up to some questions. I think we've got about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, so what, what questions do you have? All right. Quite a few. We'll start over here. Get some exercise. Hi, I was just wondering how you feel our social services, um, like our healthcare systems and our educational systems, are supporting um, immigrants to our community. Well, the biggest challenge is language access and um, the willingness to bear the cost of providing interpreters, because that really is like the need of immigrant communities when they're not yet speaking um, English. Uh, and also, um, I think we're getting there as a community, better so than a lot of other places in the world. Um, but even in Ohio, we do a better job of trauma-informed care than mo most other communities. And while language access is key, cultural competency and cultural understanding is also key. And I don't like to use the word competency. It has sort of a condescend condescending um, tone to it. So. I want to say cultural understanding, which means a lot of immigrants you serve right now, no matter where they're from, are suffering some vulnerability just because of the national rhetoric of hate. Um, so know that there might be some trauma connected to that. Um, families may be unstable. There might be a lot of anxiety in the household. There might be addiction. Um, there might be uh, domestic violence. Because that's what happens when you have to internalize your feelings about the outside world, right? It usually is a, a kind of a dynamic within family that's playing out that we can't know. So in the so social service context, I think um, some understanding of the fact that immigrants are particularly under attack. 
I don't think this is a difficult thing to tap. Whenever we've ever had um, a hate crime in our community, people know. It's you know time to understand that somebody's ethnic background or their um, religious background might be impacting how they're showing up for this meeting today and what they're able to contribute. So that's the key. Um, but language access, there's an opportunity here for us to be um, a step ahead of the rest of the state. Um, language, the Supreme Court really does, the Supreme Court of Ohio does fund and pay for a lot of the court needs and the justice system needs, but within the medical communities and social services community, that funding is scarce. So it's you know time to speak to funders about the need for funding language access so that we can better serve immigrants. And I don't like to think that you're taking away from other communities in need, right? It's just expanding the work we do and doing it better. Yeah, uh, less of a question and more of a statement. Uh, 30 years ago, I was that little immigrant boy who was in North Hill, and uh, actually thanks to International Institute, I learned to speak English, and a lot of my family was able to properly immigrate to the United States through the amazing work of some of the lawyers and attorneys with International Institute. So uh, that program is uh, it's phenomenal, and watching it grow from a small little brick building on the corner of Talmadge and Dayton to an amazing facility and uh, developing almost a new community in the North Hill community is, uh, is phenomenal. And I just want to say my family will never forget that. Oh, thank you. We need to talk. Madhu, you are probably preaching to the choir here, but to follow up with what this gentleman said, can you describe for us how the immigrants in the North Hill neighborhood, that section of this community, have changed that neighborhood in the past several years? And the, the benefits of that immigrant population to this community? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's an opportunity for me to highlight the positives, which I always love. Um, but I'm a lawyer, so I always balance it out. Um, so I've only been in Akron for about four years, but I know about the North Hill community in the history, and I know that there was significant population de decline. Houses were abandoned. And when we um, had sort of the heyday of refugee resettlement, because IIA is based in North Hill, we resettled refugees in homes close to our building so that they could walk because they didn't yet drive. So it kind of, it happened organically, but abandoned homes started to be lived in. Children were playing in streets suddenly. Um, that came with the challenges as well, because there's also, North Hill is, like many communities in Akron, there was a lot of abandonment of the homes and abandoned homes, and there was a lack of kind of communities that were re rejuvenating. And, I think there's been some deliberate effort of, by the city and the county to engage communities around Akron, North Hill being one of them, uh, in development, right, in really building programs, services, um, and um, communities around neighborhoods. So the immigrants in North Hill have been part of that rebuilding of a community within North Hill, but only a part of it because it is probably in, of all the neighborhoods of Akron, I do believe it's probably the most diverse and integrated communities racially. Um, and with that comes all the challenges as well, right? There's probably 
there's probably a bit of a microcosm in North Hill of um, some of the issues our nation is facing with respect to race and fear with respect to the new neighbors and the lack of resources and who are the resources going to. So, um, but what I believe immigrants have done is given us as a community and North Hill as a neighborhood an opportunity to resolve some of the social issues that come with immigrants moving into communities, but also to rejuvenate the community with human beings. You can't have issues if a community's abandoned, right? That brings back, you know, the economic um, opportunities within that community. There's a few immigrant-owned restaurants. There's an immigrant. There's immigrant-owned groceries. There's immigrant-owned clothing stores in North Hill that have kind of brought back storefronts and not spaces everyone shops, but spaces everyone could shop if they wanted to. And that always helps economically a community rebuild, right? Because businesses will come back. Auto repair shops will stay put. Um, the veterinary offices will stay put. Um, and I think that is the key, is we don't really want an Akron to, to, we want the kids to go to college here at U of A and stay here, right? We want people to move to, to the community and have a reason to really embrace the opportunities here. And immigrants obviously will do that because all they're looking for is home. So there's an opportunity for our entire community to be home to everyone, which actually comes with all the challenges, really, in opening your doors to newcomers, no matter where they're from. I know there's a lot of Akronites that aren't from Akron, Ohio, like myself. So. You know, you can be an immigrant of other sorts as well. <laughs> but we want, you know, we want people in our town because I think that is what keeps us economically sound. And it also keeps our community dynamic. Um, we don't have to drive to Cleveland to do anything if, if the opportunities are right here. Great. Thank you. Over this side of the room. So I came to the U.S. as a grad student. And I have an observation, and I have a question. The observation is friends will sometimes turn to me and say, you know, you came here legally. Why can't everybody else come here legally? I don't think they understand. There isn't a path, not in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, um, I applied for citizenship just before 9-11. And it happened after 9-11. At the swearing-in ceremony, you take an oath where you renounce everything. The question is, has the oath changed? But one other little addendum, um, the welcome booklet. The wording wasn't quite like this, but I'm from Ireland. You, know, you are no longer Irish. You are not an Irish American. You are an American. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for me. Mm -hmm. So has the oath changed? Mm -hmm. The oath has not changed. And when did you take the oath? In, uh, right before 9-11? I applied before 9-11. Just after. The oath still requires you to, um, like, to give your allegiance to the United States government above all other governments and to renounce your allegiance to other countries. Um, we don't have a cultural concept of dual citizenship in our laws, and that's why the oath stays the same. Um, I'm more afraid of it going further off base <laughs> than I am of it getting contemporary and modern, I'm more worried about going backwards with the oath because the citizenship um, questions have gone backwards. 
So the actual application um, has become much more um, invasive about um, understanding. You actually have to share your all your social media platforms uh, with your with the government before you become a U.S. citizen. Um, it's not probably they're not going to find terrorists by doing that, right? <coughs> should, that should be a much easier um, search. And by the time you're applying for U.S. citizenship, you've been vetted for security threats, right? So I'm not sure what they're looking for, um, but it concerns me. Um, and then also, I, I actually was pr a pretty young attorney during 9-11, and um, we've had ebbs and flows of um, immigrant backlash in our country based on usually our foreign policy, and more recently our domestic policy. And I have to say that you even got through that process you know, pre-9-11 and pro after 9-11 and became a U.S. citizen. <laughs> Good for you. Not really yeah, but some people just said, forget it. This is a mess. And I'm concerned about how many more immigrants are choosing not to pledge that allegiance because we don't have the same security for immigrants we once had. And so people are even more questioning whether they should give up that loyalty. By the way, you didn't give up your pass passport, right? right? Because our government doesn't have the authority to take away your citizenship. So you can make that oath, but it, it's just a promise. It's like getting married. Most of us that work in the industry do. Um, it's really shocking the questions they ask. Right? So we're still looking for communists, right? So they still ask, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And I'm pretty sure we might have some Americans that <laughs> would probably say they are. I don't know. Anyhow, there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of odd questions. Right. But that's one of the weird dated questions. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And I think the most difficult part of the application, I'd already been in the country a long time, and you had to document every time you had arrived and left. And I go back mm -hmm. to Ireland. Yes, right. Because that was pretty crazy. Yeah, that, that's tough. And then they also ask five years of residence and five years of um, employment, which they used to not have a limit five years, so that was really difficult. But they really do want every trip you've ever taken. Um, yeah. For some and then for others, you know, you wouldn't, you'd be shocked at the disparity because we have people who've lived here 20 years and can't get a green card and they've never gone back. So it just depends. Great. And I think just seeing Pam uh, and I know the library uh, hosts uh, uh, citizenship ceremonies, right, a couple times a year or something. So I, I think yeah, just that's, that's good. another good opportunity for people. I know I was challenged with that to attend, whether there or a personal friend or something, but to even see that and uh, my friend was I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so we too, it's in usually at the end of June or beginning of July, IIA, along with um, the federal government, has an oath ceremony at the library. And it is quite a thing to see. Usually we just have immigrants and their family that come, but it's open to the public and it's fairly publicized. So it's just a matter of making sure that um, if you want to experience that opportunity, um, do come because it's quite moving.
Um, uh, I'm going to try and do three quick things here. Uh, number one, thank you for being here, and, and thank you for everyone, your staff, everyone uh, that was involved in the decision for you being here. Two, I think you are supremely interesting, um, and you know, I, think, I think your story is fascinating, so I would encourage you to, to perhaps see yourself as significantly more valuable than I think that you do. Um, and, 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 and your work, your, your work is good. Oh, yeah, can't get off that hook. So um, under, under, I guess, the notion or assumption that um, no matter what label we try to place on each other, we're all human beings, right? right? So my question is, um, how do you continue to believe the best about humanity when oftentimes you see the worst on a consistent basis? That's easy. The people I've represented, they constantly show me and teach me about human resilience. And if you can stay open after some of the atrocities that people conduct upon each other in this world, and I, anything's possible. Um, I've had many people say, Medea, you should be curled up in a ball crying because of the work you do. And I'm not. I actually generally feel like I'm more happy than most people because I've always got perspective. And it's not because, it's not this <coughs> trauma porn where we're just comparing our lives to someone who's been traumatized. It's actually the notion that most of the people I've worked with are survivors of whatever the challenges that migration brings. And so they constantly teach me of the possibilities that humanity um, presents to us on a daily basis. Um, we all get that wonderful opportunity. I have children who have taught me um, what it means to overcome. There is this one, boy, uh, one young boy that I think of, he's probably now um, in med school. He was in college last night connected to him, but he, he was from El Salvador and he fled sexual violence that were at the hands of his grandmother, actually. And um, that, I know that's shocking that I just said that out loud, but that is shocking. But when he sat in front of me and he was very, it took me six years to get his story out of him and to build the trust. But when he finally shared it with me and I encouraged him to, you know, I didn't want him to have to testify in front of a judge, so I really needed him to tell a social worker or um, the therapist that I referred him to so that the therapist could testify on his behalf. And, and I said, I know you're afraid, um, but I need you to be. I need you to show me. I need you to be the boy I know you are, which is you have. You're very brave. So you, I know you can tell your story because you told me the story. Um, and he said, But I'm, t I'm terrified. I, how can I be brave if I'm scared? And I, I, we've all heard it, right? You can't actually be courageous unless you overcome the challenge of fear, right? So. Um, I, I think about him all the time because I think he showed me that you know, I was asking this of a kid that was at the time 12 years old and he showed me that with all the things that are broken in our world with the justice system that even requires him to have to be to, sh to tell these stories he also was empowered because he told me and everything was okay and I was gonna have his back and you know, be by his side. And I think <coughs> I constantly am shown that people will show up, they will open up, they will share their vulnerabilities, they will overcome. So it kind of makes me a little bit more positive about everything we're going through because you can't really beat people down. They will, 
no matter what atrocities they've suffered, they, they overcome. There's more of that than we are aware of because it, most of us go around silently overcoming, right? People aren't, we're not giving voice to those experiences, but it won't be more than a decade. It will be less than that, right? Definitely in the next five years, we will be hearing more and more and more stories of the survivors, especially the survivors that have been through our immigration system in the last few years. Um, listen to NPR, there's a great story, um, I think it's on Reveal, if anyone listens to NPR, that shares some stories about immigrants that are hard to listen to, but you also, if you look, if you really listen, you hear that there's survivors underneath all these atrocities that we're hearing about. Um, but I also just want to tell you, I'm actually pretty confident, and I know. <laughs> I just don't like to, I feel like I'm very Northeast Ohio, in that, yeah, you got to be self-deprecating. Right? <laughs> you can't be a Browns fan and brag. <laughs> and with that, we will end <laughs> Thank you all so much. Phenomenal questions, Madhu. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Yesterday, uh, as part of JLA, we had an opportunity to go um, to a jail where a gentleman actually shared some of his vulnerabilities with us. And there was a little quote that he shared that kind of resonated with me, um, that decisions determine destiny. Um, and I just want to say thank you guys that we have leaders in our community, leaders in our community like Madhu and Jeremy, who have made these decisions to determine that we're going to have a brighter destiny here in Akron. So, Thank you guys again for taking the time out of your day, the time out of your work to just come and share with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, secondly, I just want to thank Ken Babby, uh, Sam, and the rest of the staff over here at the Rubber Ducks for putting this on for us. And finally, I just have a couple uh, alumni announcements. We do have that new uh, Leadership Akron Alumni and Members Facebook page where you can get engaged with the rest of your alumni. There's some fun conversations going on there, so please do take the time out of your day and join us on that uh, forum. And uh, secondly, the, less, the next thing I have is March 11th, we have Crystal Jones and Project Ujima, so please do join us again next month, and uh, have a good rest of your day, all right? We do take uh, donations to charity, and uh, Madhu is actually uh, raising money for International Institute of Akron. So could you just share a little bit of uh, how these donations can uh, assist you guys with the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I told you a lot about the challenges that the International Institute has faced. You know we've been in the community for over 100 years, and we're transitioning. We're going through a massive transition as an organization, um, and we really need community support because the government does not fund a lot of the work we are doing, particularly this government. So we have a lot of allies that are raising money to do work for immigrants in our communities. Um, but I'm asking, as the executive director of IIA, for you to donate to IIA, um, support our mission. Um, just to be very specific for you, we are serving, um, uh, are we just launched our human trafficking program. We're, serving victims of sex and labor trafficking that, are, um, that were not born in the U.S., so they're international victims of trafficking. Uh, we have wraparound services, social services, employment services, legal services, um, 
victim advocacy um, to help report crime, trafficking crimes, and we also have, um, uh, what am I missing, education, English language classes, and um, job skills and life skills classes for trafficking victims at IAA. So um, that's one example. We serve a lot of um, undocumented youth in our community. So we are representing them before immigration judges here. We also are serving um, refugees, like usual, most of our refugees are coming from Congo, and more recently from Afghanistan. So there will be a new wave of um, refugees coming through that are looking different than our historically. historically. So we use the uh, funding really to support the work that we do and the services that we provide. Um, Sometimes we're literally using it to buy pillows for people and bedding when we don't have enough donations. So you're welcome to go on our website and see the items we need donated, or um, uh, and it also gives you an opportunity. There's a donate button. It gives you an opportunity to donate online. Thank you again. Thank you for joining us for the Leadership Akron podcast. For more information, visit leadershipakron.org slash podcasts.